as part of our climate policy, um, it does say that we're going to Sorry, I need to get used to not saying we or where and <laughs> start saying government. I was thinking of pulling you up. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Gosh, gosh, like just for the listeners, it's, it's literally been a matter of weeks. Welcome to First Fuel, the fortnightly podcast, bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, and the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by Catherine McKenzie. Katie wears many hats, among them President of the Australian Institute of Energy and newly minted Managing Director of MACT Consulting. However, she is with us today because she has just wound up four years serving as Principal Policy Advisor to two successive energy ministers in the McGowan Government over in Western Australia. Welcome, Katie, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Lou. Great to join you today. And uh, I think most people would appreciate, Katie, that being a ministerial advisor is a pretty intense job. So uh, how does it feel to be a civilian again? I've got to admit, I'm feeling more relaxed. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) I bet. I think that that everybody had a pretty tough year last year and and the beginning of this year has had its challenges as well. And sitting in the minister's office with a major reform program and then responding to COVID from a, you know, emergency management perspective Mm. and from a kind of consumer response perspective and then, of course, economic recovery, uh, it was a really intense year. So everything by comparison just feels that little bit more relaxing at the moment. Well, I might actually um, circle back to what a ministerial advisor's role entails later on, but I'm keen to kick off by digging into the state of play in WA, which um, uh, there's, there's no one better placed to, uh, to take our listeners through that. Um, Western Australia, uh, it's worth noting, rose its own boat and a whole lot, bunch of energy issues, the wholesale electricity market, the WEM is not connected to the national electricity market, and you've got that very helpful gas reservation policy that has helped insulate WA businesses from some of the volatility we've seen on the East Coast. Um, but there's things that are, are similar as well. There's kind of the mega trends that uh, that, are, that are driving energy policy on, on the, the East Coast, uh, just as applicable in the West, not least. Um, the ramp up of renewable generation and it seems to me that that's really been the overriding driver for energy policy making in WA over the last uh, three or four years and and that's driven a pretty major redesign of the way the WEM operates which you were closely involved with through the Energy Transformation Task Force. Um, Now there is so much here there is no way that we can do it justice Katie but can you give us a bit of a flavour for where WA found itself two or three years ago and take us through the key elements of, of I guess, the task force's response and, and the, the reforms that the government has, uh, as a result, picked up? Gosh, thinking back to 2017, so we just had a new government come in. The previous government was on a pathway to joining up with the national electricity law for our network regulation and very much sort of moving towards that national model. Um, and so when I came into the role, I think I had this idea of the things that needed to be done. But you know, in the advisor role, you have access to a lot more information and you speak to a lot more people. And what I found very quickly was that based on those conversations and those that information connecting the dots, we really had an emerging problem uh, for Western Australia um, to our really to our energy security. 
um, that really needed to take priority over everything else. And so fairly quickly, um, we started collecting the information to see where are things actually going and what are the things that need to be done. Um, it was on a on a walk back from an industry event with someone from AEMO where we really sort of delved into the rooftop solar issue. So, so Katie, this is this is very much the um, the proliferation of rooftop solar in the Southwest Interconnected mm. System, which was really driving this part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, what I thought would be useful to garner support and um, and really sort of make a change was to understand what is the timing that we have around this. Is this a this term of government? Mm. Is it a next term of government? Or, mm. or is it sort of further off in the distance? So um, we, we set out on a path to figure out what we needed to do and AMO put together this fantastic report um, highlighting what the risks were, um, what the timeframes were, and then what some of the possible solutions might be. When Minister Johnston came in, um, the first thing on the agenda was how do we deal with this proliferation of rooftop solar? Um, How do we make sure that consumers are still able to install rooftop solar and drive the benefits of it, um, but making sure we are doing it in a way that's equitable to other consumers on the system uh, and that we're not compromising reliability. Um, So, you know, kind of born out of that was the energy transformation strategy. And there's so much that sits under that, but I guess the key things were the distributed energy resources roadmap, which really sort of took us through, okay, what do we need to do from an inverter standards perspective? What do we need to do in terms of a kind of a regulatory perspective, a markets perspective, um, the whole of system plan? So how can we make the most of, of the system we already have in place um, and enable more renewables to come on, but in a way that doesn't compromise the security and reliability and doesn't um, result in unaffordable energy for consumers. Um, and then, of course, our um, what we now call the essential system services markets, um, but for those playing at home, you know, has, has traditionally been known as the ancillary services mm-hmm. markets. Um, the name change came from the fact that, you know, these services are fundamental to keeping the system secure and they're no longer just ancillary. Um, so making sure that we were actually identifying what we needed for the system and rewarded them appropriately. And then, of course, network reform. So, again, that came back to how can we better utilise the system in terms of, you know, if someone's not generating, how can we let someone else on rather than just having this um, unconstrained network where everyone reserves their patch. Um, so, yeah, it's I mean, it's been a, an enormous um, reform program and we've had other things on the side as well, including um, reforms to our second largest um, grid in the Pilbara, um, as well as enabling Western Power to install standalone power systems on the fringe of grid uh, and batteries across the distribution system. You've effectively gone through a massive regulatory reform process and I understand that um, most of these new rules come into force in October. 2022, is mm-hmm. that right? Correct. Well, uh, Katie, as, as an observer and a participant of the artist formerly known as the Coag Energy Council, was it uh, satisfying to be able <laughs> to make a decision and just get on with it over there in WA versus entering into multi-year sort of consultations with uh, other jurisdictions when you wanted to get something done? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the very first decisions that was made by government was the decision to not go down the path of joining the national electricity law. I think at the time, 
Um, whilst there was quite a lot of momentum to go that way, um, we could already see the writing on the wall that there were issues in moving that way. And so certainly when things broke down around the national energy guarantee and then, of course, moving from COAG to the National Reform Committee where there have been significant challenges around decision-making, um, I think that we are we're thrilled that we've gone the other way. Well, and you mentioned um, some of the other areas that you were progressing alongside that um, reform agenda through the, the transformation task force. Obviously, the WA energy system uh, is not just the, the Swiss. Um, there's an awful lot that's happening um, in remote parts of the state. Do you want to just uh, dig into that a little bit more for us as well? I think, um, you know, so much uh, time and energy is sort of spent talking about the Southwest interconnected system. But I think the the real opportunity to make an impact from a, you know, raising the standard in terms of reliability, decarbonisation is very much so in that off-grid space. So in WA, um, we have a regional provider called Horizon Power, who run a number of microgrids across the state, across various different weather zones. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've sort of been looking at with them is how can we help um, reduce reliance on diesel um, with extreme weather events becoming more prolific? Mm. I think that, um, you know, disruptions to diesel supply has become quite an issue. So, you know, how can we reduce that reliance Um improve reliability and, again, decarbonise. Um, the Pilbara reforms, though, is something that has been bubbling along for many, many years, um, something that the previous government dealt with as well, um, and that is we have a number of discrete networks up in the Pilbara, um, one run by Linter, one run by um, Horizon Power, and then sort of some run by private um, proponents. So how could we ensure that um, we were getting the best deal for consumers up there? Um, how can we, um, yeah, really look at reducing the prices up there, sharing the um, generation we have there and the sort of backup, um, you know, essential system services? Um, and so that's something that we, again, um, started working on very early on in the term um, and very close to having the final arrangements in place. Um, I think that as some of the big mining players are focusing more and more on their decarbonisation strategies, it will be really interesting to see how it will change their appetite to um, share network assets um, and participate more in the um, in the kind of northwest interconnected system. Mm-hmm. It's sort of uh, always been a, a topic of great interest for us at the Energy Efficiency Council. That are super interested in the um, in kind of the energy management component of this transition to a twenty first century energy system and thinking about you know the most efficient way to provide energy services mm. um, and often particularly in remote areas of WA, um, even going back years and some of the work that people like Frank Tudor have done um, in his time at Horizon, mm. thinking in a really um, balanced way about the various opportunities you have to, uh, to you know, utilise all kinds of assets behind and in front of the meter to deliver an outcome and very outcome-oriented thinking, I think, in some of those, those more um, remote energy systems. Mm. Um, and so we've drawn great inspiration from that. And one of the things we often say is that there's lessons that can be learnt that have been um, pioneered in WA, but are relevant across the country. Like every 
almost every Australian state has remote areas with often skinny connections to the main grid that you know, a uh, an off-grid solution or a microgrid might actually make an awful lot of sense for a bunch of regional and rural communities, um, but we need the mechanisms to be able to, I guess, deliver that, and, and I think there's a lot of inspiration that could be drawn from WA, Katie. Absolutely. I mean, there's just in, incredible um, opportunity, and, you know, you're seeing a massive shift in the, the mining um, sector as well for new projects um, moving towards that kind of um, renewable microgrid options. Mm. Um and, you know, whilst in the past we've seen a lot of duplication of assets because, you know, they're, they're worried about, you know, if there's any interruption to to supply, there's obviously going to be enormous um, impacts on their business. Mm. But as we sort of look at this sort of much more decarbonised renewable future, you know, sharing those assets starts to make more and more sense. Um, I think one of the things, though, that I would note um, in that sort of off-grid space or um, the microgrids that Horizon Power works with is they don't have the same regulation that we have on the Southwest Interconnected System mm. or across, across the national electricity market um, for networks. So they aren't typically scrutinised by the independent economic regulator. There's obviously a very rigorous process they must go through as part of the budget process by government, mm. um, but they don't have those same limitations that we have on the East Coast and, and in WA's main grid. So, you know, they don't have to worry about the boundaries between the network service provider, the generators and the retailers. And I think that's enabled Horizon Power to, to move forward and, and be much more innovative in their solutions for customers. Yeah, which um, it kind of goes to a broader regulatory question about how you get an optimal outcome, which often involves you know different parts of the the, the energy stack, um, kind mm. of working together in an integrated way and kind of identifying to, to identify the most efficient outcome. Horizon's mm. able to do that because some of those um, Chinese walls don't exist. Um, we like the Chinese walls. There's good reasons to have the Chinese walls, but you've all, you've got to set up the incentives in the system so that you actually alongside the the appropriate separate between the, those those parts of the market that you're actually getting an optimal outcome as well? I guess that's the thing. I mean, the one of the issues that has plagued players in the, in the market is this um, asymmetry of information. Mm. And so one of the things with the whole system plan that we sort of sought to do is make sure that we look at what would be the most efficient outcome for the system if we were if we were not thinking about, you know, what's best for me and my little silo, but what's actually best for the yeah. system. Yeah. Um, and so having a little bit more transparency around the places it would make sense to build things um, and the types of generation that would make sense, um, you know, and the sorts of storage, et cetera, so that you can take that more whole system view. But I do think it's it's challenging um with the regulators in that there's actually a lot of scope under the regulatory frameworks to do more innovative things, but typically um, I, I think the regulators haven't taken up that. I think there's a, a hesitancy to step outside of what they know and love to date. And, uh, you know, my my experience is, isn't so much on the East Coast, so perhaps I'm, I'm speaking out of turn, but I think that there needs to be a bit of a cultural shift in the regulators to say, okay, well, you know, the status quo isn't an option. 
Like we we actually have to change and we're not going to get it right every single time, but unless we sort of start, you know, taking those risks, um, we're actually putting ourselves in more risk. To do the transition to a 21st century energy system, we need to try a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And as you say, not all of it is is going to going to pan out, um, but um, it's through experimentation that we're going to learn what works and what, what doesn't. Um, and so there needs to be... There needs to be, um, I guess, as you say, that cultural shift. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that some conservatism in this space is entirely appropriate. Um, it's oh, just, absolutely. it's just that the um, that um, we need to to match some some baseline conservatism with a certain amount of entrepreneurialism, um, mm. um, which might be an un- uncomfortable word for a regulator. But we need to we need to be prepared to um, try some stuff um, and do it pretty quickly because the tra- because the technology is moving so far ahead of where the regulations are at. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. I think you know we need to keep coming back to what is in the long term interests of consumers. And as I say, pretending that a transition is not underway is not in the long-term interests of consumers. And, you know, through um, really campaigning for change in the early days, it was very important to make the point that it is changing whether you like it or not. And so you have an opportunity to either make it a more managed transition or one that is completely unruly um, where you find yourself falling short of being prepared for it. First Fuel is brought to you by the Energy Efficiency Council, a not-for-profit membership association for businesses, universities, governments and NGOs. The Council's mission is to unlock the potential of energy efficiency to deliver healthy, comfortable buildings, productive, competitive businesses and an affordable, reliable and sustainable energy system for Australia. To find out how your organisation can get involved, visit eec.org.au forward slash membership. All right. Well, I wouldn't mind changing gear, Katie, because it's not every day that we have the opportunity to talk to someone fresh from a ministerial office. So given you've just left government, I'm, I'm keen to spend a, a little time digging into that whole experience. And uh, firstly, interested to know what your uh, expectations were heading into the role versus what it was actually like. Yeah, it's 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 funny looking back. I'm not I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting, but I think it's fair to say that whatever it was that I was expecting, um, the result wasn't quite that. Um, I think every ministerial office is a little bit different. Um, a lot of it depends on the minister and the chief of staff and the issues of the day. And I had the great fortune of working across both Treasurer Wyatt's as well as um, Minister Johnson's offices. Um, But when I went in, you know, I had this list of things that I thought, you know, I wanted to achieve. They they were kind of the key issues. And as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, um, very quickly realised that what was needed was much, much bigger. Um, And so a lot of my time in the very early days was building the case for change. Um, It was a government that was very, very focused on repairing state finances. Uh, We are in a huge amount of government was in a huge amount of debt um, at the time and so it meant that things that weren't um, core business, that weren't an election commitment were incredibly hard to get funding for. Mm -hmm. So to try and um, 
get attention for something that seemed quite dry was quite challenging and um, and took a lot of time to think about, you know, the way in which we influence both internally and externally. Um, and then, of course, yeah, so huge reform program that wasn't quite expected and then, of course, COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, as sort of mentioned, there was a lot that went into solving um, solving that as well. So it wasn't what I expected, but I feel like I got so much more out of it. So it was a really, overall, a really positive experience. So you mentioned, um, I guess, learning um, how to have that influence internally within government as well. And I, I guess this is something that um, average person on the street doesn't necessarily appreciate is that um, is, uh, government isn't a monolith. You've obviously got a whole bunch of different views and a whole bunch of different expertise. And, um, and my observation of various energy ministers' offices over the journey is that they tend to be the repository and have this, like any portfolio area, have much deeper expertise um, in, a, in a policy area than, than other parts of government. Um, what's been unusual about the last five, ten years is that it's been um, headline-making um, at the same time mm. as being kind of incredibly complicated um, and incredibly consequential, mm. both from an environmental and an economic perspective. Um, so w- how did you how did you deal with that, the, 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 the need to kind of build a consensus for, you know, what we've just been talking about is a, is a pretty uh, ambitious and uh, significant reform agenda in the energy space. Yeah, look, I think it's fair to say when I when I started in the role, I was very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and incredibly naive. <laughs> you know, having worked in the private sector for such a long time, you know, we we spend a lot of time thinking about things in in the way that we always talk to people um, about in industry, mm. um, and it was incredibly important to move away from, you know, how we would usually talk about it to kind of ways in which our audience talks about it. And so, you know, for me, um, you know, dealing with the Premier's office fairly early on, I think they, they didn't think we were doing much, even though it was like major market reforms that we had already sort of committed to. Mm. And that's because they weren't the sorts of things that made the headlines, you mm-hmm. know, um, economic reform isn't sexy. Um, and so I, I started thinking about, well, what are their main drivers? What do they care about? Um, what What's their sort of basis of understanding? And how can I frame the problem mm-hmm. and the solution in a way that resonates with them? So, um, you know, understanding that, okay, this is a government who's really focused on budget repair, that really cares about jobs, that really cares about regional opportunities and really cares about the affordability piece. So what is it about the things that we need to do or the the problems that we're faced with um, that actually touches on those things that they care about? Um, And what are the... You know, what are the key things that you would find in the media statement when we go live, you know, with, with these announcements? So how do you not only articulate it in a way that ministers will care about, but also how do you articulate it in a way that consumers are going to care about it as well? And so for me, going through that po- process was a, a real game changer um, and um, I think was, was sort of, yeah, what, what helped sort of move things along um 
I went and did a, a course over at Harvard on behavioral economics um, to kind of help me understand, you know, what are what are the, some of those just basic human drivers um, and to help with that influencing piece as well as then later down the track um, designing um you know, de- designing solutions that will actually be effective with consumers as well. It's um, so important, isn't it, the story? Yeah, absolutely. You can be as right as right can be, but if you don't, if you can't tell the story to explain why that right thing is also in the interests of the person or the the people that you're talking to, it it doesn't matter because it's never gonna mm. it's never gonna go anywhere. Particularly particularly in an area that is very complex because it's got its own inertia. Mm. Um, it all sort of revert back to the status quo very easily. So you need not just a story, but a, I think a pretty compelling one, right? Absolutely. It's particularly complex when you've got an area like energy, which you've got the technical complexity, the implications for the economy, then you've got this sort of overarching complexity that sort of uh, interacts with the whole climate agenda <laughs> and the, the, the broader transition that we're all bumbling our way through as well. And so it's, a, it's no mean feat to, to, craft a, to craft a compelling narrative and a narrative also that needs to be multifaceted because it means different mm-hmm. things for different people. Absolutely. So through the Distributed Energy Resources Roadmap Program, we spend a lot of time looking at um, customer segmentation Mm. and thinking about what are the different things that will resonate with different customers. For the first time, um, we had our our policy body, Energy Policy WA, working with um, some of the government trading enterprises and AEMO on that messaging piece. And so we made some digital explainers um, and tried to break it break it all down, um, covering off on those sort of different segments. Has it been perfect? No. Is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely. And certainly going through that process really helped with that sort of consumer engagement that we also do, um, sorry, that government also does um, through their sort of inquiries from constituents as well. We, we have this distributed system that is reliant on this on sort of decentralized decision making and so how you set up the structures and provide the information and and, and guide without you know kind of taking agency around uh, away from people through that process mm. is it's the it's the great question of the moment right absolutely and it's it's been so fascinating speaking to people because there's just so many smart people working on these things, but we have to check ourselves sometimes and remind ourselves that people don't think the way that we necessarily think. You know, when people talk about electric vehicles being the absolute answer to the issues we're having with the grid, I would say, yes, there is absolutely potential to do that. But you can't assume that people out of their own goodwill are going to plug their cars in during the day and and charge their cars and then, you know, input that um, energy they've stored into the grid at the peak um, to deal with the system. Um, you know, people aren't necessarily going to think like that. So what are some of the things that you do to nudge them in the right direction or, or make sure that it's happening? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating space, but we need to keep checking ourselves when we start going down that purely economic pathway. All right, Katie, so if there's any uh, any, uh, young guns out there that are contemplating a ministerial advisor career, uh, would you you, uh, advise them to to jump in or would you tell them to run a a million miles? And if you think they should jump in, uh, what would be your one piece of advice? (laughs) Um, Absolutely jump in. 
make sure though that you have a really strong support network around you um, and talk to people that have been in the role before you do get a lot of knocks along the way. Um, I've got the bruises uh, <laughs> to show for it. And it's one of those things, I mean, for me, I'm very much so driven by passion rather than power. And so for me, I felt kind of extremely invested in what I was doing. And so, you know, when you hear no, like you hear it that much louder because you care. Um, and so for me, like the, the challenge I, I took on board was, okay, this is a no. Is this a no-no or is this a, a no because you haven't convinced me yet and I need to get smarter in the way that I go about this? Mm-hmm. Um, so for anyone that's wanting to make a difference, I'd say absolutely go for it. But, yeah, have have that tribe around you to support you along the way. Well, you're certainly someone that I know is keen to continue making a difference, Katie. So I think our listeners will have picked up that um, uh, you aren't hanging up your spurs by any stretch of the imagination. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's what's next in your career? So I've actually taken on more of a portfolio career since leaving the minister's office and one of the um, roles I've taken on is principal project developer for the Australian Industry Energy Transitions Initiative. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's working with uh, some of Australia's major players across the hard-to-abate sectors. So we're working with BHP, Woodside, West Farmers, Blue Scope Steel, Orica um, and, and many more to not only knowledge share but also to work up some demonstration projects that will really help them get on some get onto net zero emissions pathways um, so that's something that you know I feel incredibly passionate about and you know as I said I'm only sort of two weeks into the role uh, and already the conversations have just been absolutely fascinating. And so to complement that, I'm also doing some consulting as well. Um, So I started my own consulting firm, Match Consulting, and that's really a vehicle for me to nerd out and, and again, sort of pursue my other passions. So at the moment, I've been having conversations around um, decarbonisation pathways in developing countries, Mm -hmm. been talking about community energy business models, uh, and then also... um, you know, some some projects with some universities as well. So that's been really, really um, interesting. I suppose um, also having, I guess, a little bit more time to do the other things that I really care about. So I started Women in Energy back in 2015 Mm -hmm. to really encourage women to pursue careers in the energy sector and, and help support them up into senior leadership positions. And so um, one of the things I've been doing is I'm holding a workshop tonight on, um, you know, five steps to move your career forward with a fantastic facilitator um, who really helped me back in 2015 sort of figure out what pathway I wanted to take in my career. Mm. Um, so doing more mentoring as well. So Katie, there's an awful lot there that is uh, occupying your attention. Is there anything in particular you'd like to, to point people to, either a website or some initiative that they could engage with if they're interested in uh, getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, the Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative that I'm working on, I'm working on that through Climate Kick Australia, uh, and they have a number of different things on the go, one of which is the Climate Launchpad, mm. which is the world's 
biggest clean tech and green business ideas competition. They're actually taking applications at the moment for the 2021 program. So for anyone that's sort of interested in making an impact in terms of decarbonising our our energy or other hard-to-abate sectors, I really encourage you to apply. Um, This year we're actually very fortunate to have partnered with Humanitech and there's a $50,000 grant up for grabs. So if you've got an innovative green business idea, uh, clean tech idea that you really want to bring into reality, then I would definitely encourage you to visit the Climate Kick Australia website um, and look out for the Climate Launch Pad. Fabulous. Well, well, we'll certainly be sure to include that link in our show notes as well if anyone wants to click through. But uh, we're, we're out of time. I just want to say it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit over your time in uh, in uh, the various treasurers and ministers' offices that we've been chatting to you. But, um, you know, incredibly excited to see uh, what's next and looking forward to staying in touch as you uh, continue to have an impact um, in the energy transition we're all working our way through here in Australia. Thanks so much, Luke. It's been a pleasure dealing with you too. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. Uh, if you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Katie is at Katie Mac underscore LLB, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And uh, it's been a little while since we've done a live recording of First Fuel, but uh, we're back and back in style uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'll be joined by Stanford University's Diane Grunich. She'll be joining me live from California uh, to unpack the Biden administration's early moves on climate, uh, what exactly is in this $2 trillion infrastructure plan, uh, which is going to be trying to get through the US Senate in, in two or three months, and indeed the aftermath of the Climate Leaders Summit, which uh, Joe Biden is is hosting on the 22nd of April, uh, attended by many world leaders, including our own Scott Morrison. So there'll be plenty to talk about to register for that live recording. Visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts but for now and until then it's a goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon